Welcome back to the Space Albi Institute podcast. I'm Andrew Pettiprin talking as always to Bobby Mixa. Bobby, how are you? I'm good, Andrew. It's good to, it's been what, like more than two weeks since we last talked. We we took a little break. We did. And since then, is the is the Vistula River frozen? I, I think it's Almost. pretty darn cold where you are. This morning when I got in the car, it was negative 18 Celsius. I'm starting to think now in Celsius instead of Fahrenheit. I have to now do a little calculation to figure out what it is in Fahrenheit, but it is cold. So um, anyways, this is, uh, you know, it, it's the, the Vistula I don't think has frozen yet, but uh, it's just about. So we will uh, we'll see you tomorrow. Okay, we'll keep us posted on that. In the meantime, we have a great guest today, someone I am really excited to talk to. I know you are too, Bobby. Yeah. I have I have kind of a mental list in my head of people that I've known over the years through mostly through Twitter that I, I just have this list in my head of people that I really want to sit down and have a drink with and just really get to know properly in the flesh. And and our guest today, Alan Cornett, is really very close to the top of that list. So we are excited to have Alan on the show today and to, to uh, you know, just shoot the breeze a little bit, not in person, but the next best thing. So Alan, how are you? I'm doing well. And, you know, if you want to get together for a drink, I, I am happy to supply uh, the drinks on that you, anytime. Uh, either of you, both of you are welcome to come by and uh, and we'll settle in and talk. Well, it would but have been much easier. Today. <laughs> yeah, let's talk today. Gosh, you know, as you know, I think, Alan, I used to live in Nashville, and that would have been much, much easier for me to drive up it your would way. Have been. That's right. That's right. Yeah, you, uh, we we are all a little far afield from one another right now, but um, but you weren't Indeed. too far down in, uh, down in Music City, USA. Yes, now I'm down in the Lone Star State. Bobby was here, but now he's he's over in Poland living the dream of the old world. Living the and dream, maybe that's, yeah. The honeymoon is yeah, over, I see, Andrew. Uh, <laughs> I see a lot of Robert's uh, pictures online, and they're it's always so beautiful there. Oh well, yeah, I'm. Uh, I think I'm. Yeah, any place I'm, I'm, I'm just taking pictures. Always trying to make my friends jealous back in the states, but it's not <laughs> it's all. Working. I leave out. I leave out a lot of the pictures of you. Know, <laughs> you know the stuff that, like probably ninety percent of the stuff I probably wouldn't want to post. But there's a, uh, <laughs> you'll see an awful lot of church pictures and cafes, and um, so I mean, Krakow is a perfect city for that, but. Yeah, Kentucky. I love Kentucky. I mean, I remember when I was a kid going down to like most Chicagoans passing through Kentucky on the way to Disney World. Yeah, but sure. I remember the the hills of Kentucky and I thought, wow, this is quite a beautiful place with the it, you know, it, it, it yeah. is it is very pretty. I live uh because I'm from eastern Kentucky and we've got, you know, the whole mountain foothills, pretty scenery there. In, in and around Lexington, we've got the rolling hills and horse farms, and some of the horse farms are just absolutely gorgeous, just immaculately kept. And so it, it really is as far as just sort of natural and, um, I guess, not exactly man-made, but man-helped natural um, beauty. It's, it's really, it really is nice. Now, we don't, you know, we don't have the quite the old world charm of, uh, of Krakow, but uh, Lexington, as far as um, American cities, not on the East Coast. So after that first wave, Lexington's actually a, a quite an old uh, city for the U.S. It was founded, I mean, it was named Lexington because 
when they uh, the initial settlers came, they heard news of the Battle of Lexington, and so they named they named the city after hmm. the uh, the battle in the town of Lexington. So Lexington, Kentucky, is actually bigger than the original Lexington, but but we have uh, you know we have buildings that go back into the late. 18th century not many but there are some and so it's um you know as we, we do the best we can do as far as as far as the new world goes i guess yeah well um alan something you said before when you were you you mentioned uh bobby's you know pictures on social media of of krakow and 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 europe uh it 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 uh, made me think about how, you know, Bobby said he discarded so many uh, non-picturesque things. And, you know, I, I appreciate that, Bobby, you curate your experience of living over there. And, and Alan, it seems to me you curate your life quite well also. And I, I have <laughs> well, to admit, I when I see your, your posts of your, you know, your, your bluchers or your, you know, bourbon tastings and, you know, various things like that, I think that's a man who knows how to live. And uh, <laughs> so I want to get into that a little bit today because, you know, one of the things we, one of the things we're interested in, in our venture here at the Space Salvi Institute is the, the marks of culture are, are all around us. And, you know, we, so and we live in this world of stuff. And so, to some degree, Cultural a lot debris, of this. You might even say. Well, well, you've you've jumped the gun, but that's that's precisely where I want to go now. I want you to tell us about your project, cultural debris, because that is when I when I first saw that those words together pop up with, as this podcast and this this venture that you've started. I thought that is perfect. I love that. Uh, it just sums up so much um, that that I think is important. The idea that we're kind of living in, maybe we're living in the garbage heap, but we're we're searching for the debris, the stuff that's blown away or been cast off that we actually think is the the important stuff, the beautiful stuff. So tell us tell us about your project, Alan. I, I think it's it's really wonderful. Well, so so the name is uh, is very flagrantly stolen from Russell Kirk. Um, who many years ago I had the, the good fortune of working for uh, as an assistant, but he wrote one of his early essays that he wrote was called Cultural Debris. And it wasn't, I guess I wouldn't say it's a major essay of his, but I always really liked it. And I think that he liked it too, because he included it in the Viking Portable Conservative Reader, which he edited. And the only thing in it uh, of his that he collected was that essay, and uh, I th I thought, well, uh, clearly he he likes that essay too. But it's one that had always stuck with me. And in the essay, he talks about going around Scotland with a wealthy friend of his. Now, Dr. Kirk uh, did his graduate work, his uh, doctoral work at St Andrews in Scotland, and so uh, and for many years owned a home uh, in Scotland as well. Not, I don't think it was a large home, but he had a place there. And he spent quite a bit of time in Scotland and uh, apparently had this wealthy friend and they would go, they would go roaming around. And he talks about going, that they would go to these, um, these Scottish estate auctions, uh, just sort of out in the middle of nowhere. And they would be selling, selling these old leather bound books. And his friend that he, he traveled with was a collector of, uh, old books in classical languages. He was a classicist, I guess, as a hobby. And so he would buy these old Greek and, and Latin texts in these old Scottish leather-bound 
volumes for next to nothing because nobody nobody wanted them. And uh, Dr. Kirk's friend is really the one who's who, uh, if memory serves, is the one who said we live in this we live in a time of cultural debris that we're we're here trying just like you were describing, uh, Andrew. We're we're trying to kind of capture these last remnants of something greater. You know that we uh, it's it's like we've stumbled across the pyramid. We don't we don't know how they built it or what it's for, but we're awestruck by it and. It's, um, you know, it's that conservative impulse, uh, not political conservative, just that conservative, lowercase c, conservative impulse of, of truly conserving that which is valuable that's gone before. And there's that, always that sense of sort of longing and nostalgia, you know, for maybe... Uh, a little bit of an idealized past. People have always been people and thing, bad things have always happened. Yet at the same time, when we look back, um, it, it looks like their best was a lot better than our best, doesn't it? I mean, uh, again, go and look at Robert's pictures. I mean, we, we're not doing anything like that today. And we can learn from those things. We should, one, try to try to protect them and save them and uh, at the same time, I know that this is something you all have in mind with your institute. We want a culture that exists now that can do those things. It's not just simply an antiquarian exercise, but, but it is better if we can do that too. And we have to have the cultural uh, capacity, I guess. Uh, to be able to do that. So anyway, getting back cultural debris. So uh, I started a podcast um, late 2020, uh, sort of still in the the throes of COVID, I suppose. And we weren't, you know, we weren't in like st extreme lockdown, but they didn't like you to leave sort of, <laughs> sort of period. <laughs> Um, and so I started, uh, I had, it was a podcast that I had wanted to do for a long time. And it's one of those things that had been in the back of my mind. I was like, okay, now, now is the time. If I can't do it now, when will I ever do it? Uh, so I started the podcast and, it, and, and the idea was simply to, well, I tell people sort of the idea of the podcast is to talk to people who I think are interesting that I want to talk to. That's sort of my, that's my parameters for it. But uh, cultural debris is is broad enough that I can talk to people from all all kinds of walks of life. I mean, my first my first guest was uh, Bradley Berzer, who uh, wrote the biography of Russell Kirk, and we talked about Russell Kirk. But I've you know I've had opportunity to talk to a Habsburg. I mean, who would have ever thought that you know a Habsburg would be on my podcast? That's that's insane. I uh, this past year I spoke to. Um, I spoke to the uh, the actor who played the Phantom of the Opera in the final performance on Broadway. Um, you know, that's those are sort of insane opportunities to have. But all of those, to me, fall fall under that uh, that umbrella. You know, we talked about sort of I guess expected things like C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien and uh, you know those kinds of things. But uh, and I and I'm working on a upcoming interview with Holly Ordway about her new book on Tolkien. Uh, Holly's getting ready to, well, already is the, the most frequent guest ever on cultural debris. She's getting ready to have her third interview. So she, Holly keeps wow. writing 
She well, and and uh, I guess a, an old uh, Word on Fire compatriot of your all's her book uh, mm-hmm. comes from Word on Fire, and Holly does such interesting work. And like every time she comes out with something, I'm like, Holly, I need to interview you because you keep bringing out these interesting things. But uh, you know, a lot of it is. Uh, a lot of the things that appeal to me, just sort of my own personal interests. And so that's, I, I have to accept that and other people do too. But um, the good thing is I found that there really are people who kind of get what I'm doing and it's grown steadily. And, uh, you know, I'm probably not going to knock, knock Joe Rogan out of his top spot or anything. I've keep waiting for Spotify to send an offer, but we so far, so far that hasn't happened. But nonetheless, I'll keep plugging along, and and the I feel like the right people will find me, and uh, and so far that's that's been nice. And then uh, out of that has grown uh, cultural debris uh, excursions, which uh, uh, my friend Tom and I started uh, in 2022. We did our first trips, uh, and and the idea there are uh, is that we will sort of visit places where we can see up close cultural debris and. Uh, try to uncover maybe some of and also go to places maybe that the regular tourist wouldn't go. Uh, so uh, our first trip was to Genoa, Italy, and we're going back there this year. Um, and uh, we had two groups who went with us, and we do mic- sort of micro small groups. There are si- six people uh, maximum in each group plus Tom and me, so they're very small uh, the idea was to do the exact opposite of kind of big industrial travel, you know, where you see the dozens and dozens of people following along, getting on a bus and following a guy holding up a little flag and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but with our group, we're small enough that everybody gets to know each other. Uh, we can take public transportation together if we need to go someplace. Uh, ideally, we try to walk as much as we can, um, but we do little day trips out. And uh, and we can go to places that those big groups can't go to. We can go to restaurants where they have, you know, a small table uh, that's that eight people can sit around and you can't take 50 people in there and you can't have a discussion. Um, so that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to do something different with that. And uh, and, you know, thankfully, we found people who uh, who have appreciated that and who get it. Of course, we're looking for more people. We hope to grow, but uh, but it's uh, it's been fun starting this and seeing kind of a tangible outgrowth of it too. So the podcast uh, will continue, and uh, but this is something that that I hope will will continue to grow out of it too. And so that's fascinating. You know, um, Andrew and I were talking about the uh, name of your podcast a little bit earlier, Cultural Debris, and we were. You know, um, the other day I had to talk uh, to my students um, about the Renaissance. They've been working on the Renaissance for, you know, a number of weeks now. And, you know, a lot of the students mentioned that it was this encounter with the past, this, if you want to say, with the cultural debris of the Roman Empire in Italy and these journeys and tours of Italy, but also just for the locals rediscovering all of the stuff, the richness that was all around them that helped give birth, you know, to this, to this new culture. And so, and so anyways, it just seems to me, you know, with our project that Andrea and I are trying to work on is to like really help people once again, see 
and also understand those artifacts from the past. Not so as to be kind of nostalgic um, and antiquarian, but for the sake of, of revitalizing things today, especially, you know, with, um, especially in Krakow here, you have signs of, of hope, um, but also you have so much um, destruction and and maybe signs of despair all around you. But that mixture together gives quite an interesting experience. Um, and I've always been, you know, moved by travel and going to like I was in Spain for a number of months and <clears throat> sorry, just really encountering, as Andrew called it, the marks of the faith that are still present there despite its secularism, really helped me. And I brought that back with me to America. But um, it just seems to me like such a great idea also for kind of laying the groundwork for at least some planting the seeds, at least for something like a new new culture. Yeah, I mean, I, it's important, I think. I mean, so Genoa was not a city that I was uh, particularly familiar with. Tom, we went there because Tom had spent a lot of time there and knew it well. And so that was seemed like a good place to go. It has a very large, it's one of the largest old cities in Europe, uh, intact old cities. And of course, there's a lot of history there. It was, it was a tremendous power. But, you know, and you see this, of course, in Spain, I'm sure, I'm sure in Krakow too. But you just talk about the churches and there are these just extraordinary, gorgeous churches, but they're just like little parish churches, right? They're not, I mean, little, but it's not the cathedral. And you may have three of those on three consecutive city blocks. And these uh, th these local people dedicated themselves to building that and creating that. And they, they had this vision of beauty and they had a vision of purpose. And what is it that they had that caused them, in many cases, to to create this this structure for their worship um, over generations? You know that they've when they when they start building this, they know they're not going to finish it. Maybe their grandchildren, maybe their great grandchildren, but. It, I'm sure it didn't occur to them that it wouldn't be finished. They knew it would be. We're going to start this, and it's a project that we as a community are beginning for the next century. And then once that's completed, and of course, in a sense, none of those churches are, or cathedrals are completed. They're always ongoing. But um, but once it's once it's finished, once it's you know fully realized, that's something that could last for a thousand years not just for these short, um, you know, not this little short hundred year period, but 10 of those or more. Um, our culture has no vision like that. We have no level of vision or commitment or, or comprehension of uh, beauty or longevity on those levels. And, you know, we... To revive culture, we have to regain that. Now, that's how do you do that? That's the now that's the tough part, isn't it? But but we know it existed, right? We know that these people had it, and in fact, I think one talking about your students, one of the things that it's hard to get to get people today to understand 
is that we live in a in a completely historically analogous time. I mean, it's uh, no, no other time in history has been like this. We are we're the anomaly. We're we're the anomalous time, and um, people today have the mindset that we ought to be judging these past generations, right? So there we're canceling things that don't live up to our standards. But we're the oddballs. Uh, that's not to say that we haven't made some uh, progressions in understanding of certain things. Sure, uh, we all uh, we all recognize that. But to act like everybody prior to you know 2010 was a Neanderthal or something is 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 to completely miss the point. When when you can just look like look at this cathedral, how could people like that? How could people like that be less than we are, right? Obviously, yeah. they weren't because look what they've left us. We will leave nothing like that for future generations. Nothing at all. Yeah, that that reminds me, Alan, of, you know, I, I know you're uh, having worked for Russell Kirk. You, you think a lot about conservatism. I do. I do, too. And, I, you know, I, what you're saying reminds me that I, I most identify with this strain that goes from sort of Burke to Chesterton to Kirk to Scruton, like the the idea that you know the whole idea of like the democracy of the dead, right? Like why why should we ru be ruled by just the people who happen to be walking around right now, right? right. Um, like we you know in a sense like right the past judges us, and that is so difficult for Americans, even ones who are very well educated and well formed, um, faithful Christian people, even you know to kind of really get this sense of like living in continuity. And this is a thing that, you know, when you talk to Americans about, for example, the, the secularity of Europe, um, it's true, maybe, that they, like in terms of data, in terms of, you know, church going attendance numbers, maybe we can point to Europe as being more secular. But this whole marks of faith thing that Bobby mentioned, I took that from Pierre Manon. But, but that, you know, what, what that is saying is, Precisely what you were talking about before, Alan. These people built things that can't be—they can't just be easily unbuilt. I mean, they're there. The mm -hmm. they built the faith so that it's yeah. still there. You know, even if you know for whatever awful reason people aren't going to mass anymore or whatever it may be. And this is something that we kind of want to translate back to our countrymen in America. And it seems like your project has has similar has a similar character. Yeah. I, well, I hope so. I mean, it's. We are fellow travelers, I think, uh, on those on those issues. Uh, it, it is interesting, you know, and I've uh, I've had conversations with Europeans who have expressed uh, frustration with the American viewpoint and American under or I, I guess lack of understanding of sort of the broader world. And I know that it's always it's tempting to sort of American bash and I don't want to do that because I think you know I, this is where I've lived my entire life and it's a great place in a whole lot of ways but when it comes to kind of perspective whether it be historical perspective you know we've we very much have that sort of that new world mentality of of the of a break with the past and that's a dangerous thing to have, I think. It can lead to bad places. That's why I mentioned Dr. Kirk. Um, he, he wrote his book, Roots of American Order, which was one of his, his sort of key texts. 
uh, where he traces the uh, exact, exactly the roots of the American order back to Rome and Jerusalem and, and Athens and London, that the founders, our own founders, understood very much that they were building on a classical past, right? That's why you see uh, portraits of George Washington in togas, because they, they very much wanted to connect themselves to a past. And so they understood that. But there's been a lot of kind of, I guess, American self-understanding that's not embraced that like it, it would be helpful. And, and Robert, you were talking about your students with the Renaissance. I mean, how did the people of the Renaissance understand themselves? So well, they understood themselves as a renewal and rebirth. They were going back to how they understood the classics. I mean, we, we now can see there are some things they didn't fully grasp maybe that we might know that they didn't. Nonetheless, they did a pretty good job <laughs> in the Renaissance of, of creating um, a culture out of that understanding. And so what, one of the things that we have to do is to get people to understand that there is this immense wealth of knowledge and culture, that cultural debris that's there waiting for us to embrace and utilize. We're, we're not starting from scratch. In fact, if we try, we're going to get much worse results because the people, the, the great people of the past understood that, that's, that, that they were always building on the past, that they were always trying to take that which was good and improve it. Uh, you know, that's a very Burkean idea, right? That not that we're going to somehow fossilize things, but that we see, oh, look at the look at this hard fought wisdom from thousands of years. And so that's why somebody like uh, Marcus Aurelius still speaks to us. Right. Because because that's wisdom that will always be true and it will always be valuable and we can always learn and gain from it. And there there's so much of that. But we you know, we want to put trigger warnings on anything you know, pre 21st century. So it's, it's, it's difficult to get people just sort of expand their minds. I mean, we live in a time when people believe they have the most open minds in history, but in fact, they're, they're among the most closed minds in history. Yeah. Alan, I saw, I saw that you, uh, you've written a lot about uh, Wendell Berry and also have a, I've seen some pictures of you with Wendell Berry as well. So I assume that you have a a good friendship with him and i discovered wendell berry a number of years ago um and it just it just seems like the kind of the way of life though and also his decision to come back to kentucky and to you know have a farm and to live in a way that in some uh, kind of live what was handed on to him from his own father and the numerous generations before him is such an example that um, it just seems today that, and this is not to America, it's a bash American way of life because a lot of the things that we're seeing today are so recent. And perhaps maybe you can connect that, um, you know, do some kind of genealogy <laughs> to see why it leads to that. But but it seems though with that agriculture, um, agricultural life that many of the founders stressed as being essential to make this project work, um, it just lends itself to living in a way 
that you don't break yourself off from the past. You see all things as gift. You see it as a gift then to hand on to the next generation right. and to also get, so to, to build something that will last, you know, like the, the, the to focus on the permanent things. Yeah. I, I think that's a good, that's a good thing to bring into that, which is, do we see the past as a gift or do we see the past as a burden? And I think that our generation has primarily chosen to see the past as a burden. And so uh, if it's a burden, then it's something that we need to get rid of. And so you see this wave of tearing down monuments and statues and, you know, all of those kinds of things sort of come out of that mentality uh, rather than saying, look, we, we wouldn't have any of the things that we have that we like if it wasn't for the past. Even if I don't understand that I'm living off of this intellectual, cultural capital of the past, I still am. And it's what's it's what's holding the whole ship together. And that's one of the reasons why sometimes it feels like the ship's coming apart, because because we we keep pushing away what we need to view as a gift and thinking of it as because we think of it as a burden. And that's that's a real challenge that, of course, ties into the understanding that certainly there are problems in the past uh, and we but we will always have problems that doesn't mean that we just say oh well that happened then so that means it was a-okay no we can we can assess and say okay well yeah we can see how those how people of the past did things that we today would have real problems with okay sure but we also need to have the perspective that people in the future are going to say that about us what were they thinking doing what they were doing? And there's very little sort of self-evaluation uh, when it when it comes to that, I think. But um, talking about Wendell Berry, I mean, I, I have been uh, very, speaking of a gift, I've been very, I'm very grateful for the gift of, have, of being able to know him. I, uh, uh, I was uh, talking with a friend uh, recently because I'm, I'm, actually speaking on uh, Wendell Berry at a conference in Kansas um, next month in February. Um, and I'm going to talk about sort of sort of do an introductory survey of Wendell Berry uh, to a group of people and uh, maybe tell some anecdotes, that sort of thing. But um, Barry is in some ways kind of the last man standing of that old Jeffersonian tradition. And now we're starting to see some revival of that in some ways, uh, sort of like the, the Doomer optimist groups and those sorts of things. I think uh, they're trying to implement some of those ideas, but Barry has been the torchbearer of, of that, of a strain of thought that goes back to Jefferson and goes back to the founders. And of course, Jefferson's ideal was, even at the time, was countered by the Hamiltonian vision. And it looked like Jefferson won. I mean, you look at all the different Virginia planter presidents that we had and the, and the old Hamiltonian Federalist Party literally ceased to exist. But as, as Eliot would say, there are no, there's no such thing as a lost cause because there's no such thing as a gained cause. Hamiltonianism really roared back through, um, you know, people like uh, Henry Clay, uh, my uh, fellow Lexington resident, <laughs> going back, the Henry Clay home is here in Lexington, Ashland. You can, you can visit it. It's lovely. 
But Clay brought in the American system and sort of revived those sort of those kind of Hamiltonian uh, Hamiltonian vision that really was carried forth by Lincoln and the early Republicans, um, and it became the dominant mindset of modern America. And it, that's a real it's a real shift from the way people like Washington, certainly Jefferson, Madison, thought about the Republic and what it was supposed to be. And so Barry has really been somebody who's lived that out in the best way that he can. Um, you know, and, and he is the first to say, I've not lived perfectly. And there's no such thing, of course, as a perfect life, right? We can't, we're all in a fallen world, which is crucial to understanding any of this is that we can't have the utopian perfectionism that the left thinks we have to have that doesn't mean we try we don't try to do better but we also understand that you know the fall we will always have with us until until the return so that's just the way it is um but barry has carried that forward and has also i think in in some ways reinterpreted it for um, uh, modern modern times um, but there is, of course, an element of that to the modern ear that's always going to seem anachronistic, right? So I think a lot of people dismiss Barry because he has this pastoral vision. Uh, and, and Wendell's not telling everybody to become a farmer. I mean, he says we need cities, we need city people. Not everybody is supposed to move to Henry County, Kentucky and live beside the Kentucky River. Uh, he would probably be upset if they tried to do that because he, he's not going to want that many neighbors, right? But um, it's okay for people to live in cities. But, the, but the, the thing that we have to learn is, is that America is different without a vibrant rural people and without farmers. We're seeing right now protests... Um, from German farmers. We saw earlier last year protests from Dutch farmers, particularly. Now the German farmers are, are protesting. And they are themselves, they recognize that it's not, you know, agriculture isn't an American idea because all, all of those, uh, Jefferson and others were appealing back to, you know, the, the, um, with, with, um, uh, I have a cat here on in front of me, so uh, pardon pardon the cat invasion. But um, they're, they're looking back to, with Washington, somebody like Cincinnatus. What did Cincinnatus do? Cincinnatus walked away from the plow, won the war, and went back to the plow, right? That's kind of, that's the foundational American myth. And people today don't even grasp what that's talking about and we uh we're just very disconnected from that but somebody you know barry kind of lived that out himself he was a he was a uh uh writing instructor at nyu uh very early in his career and would have could have settled into new york uh society and um you know kind of been a uh southern kentucky mascot and in at the cocktail parties and all of that and you know from a marketing standpoint that would have been a great leverage point right you could you could uh you could be the toast of the town but he walked away from all of that to come back 
Uh, he taught at UK, University of Kentucky, which I live very close to, moved back to his farm, eventually gave up teaching at UK full time and wrote. Uh, of course, you know, he was in a position where he was able to do that because of his writing and so forth. But still, he walked away from something that most people would think you're insane to walk away from. And I think that for him was something that he he personally, to be authentically himself, had to do. But it, on the one hand, has undermined the uh, his ability to be as well known as he would have been. I think you know you you stay in New York and you have that kind of that kind of literary presence and talent like he had and and productive output like he has. Uh, he would have certainly been. Um, much more well-known than he is. Um, but his writing would have been different and it, would, it wouldn't have had the power that it has now uh, because it's, it's, it's fueled now by a, an authenticity, which I know is a word that's, that's abused these days, right? Uh, because we have kind of packaged authenticity. But, uh, but I think Wendell... By doing what he did, he gave power. He gives power to what he says, in a way similar to Washington, who gave power to what he did by walking away from it, by being willing to walk away. And you know, there's the the story of uh, King George the Third when they when they tell George the Third that that Washington has has resigned his commission as general and has returned to Mount Vernon and given up, given up power. And George the third said, if he does that, he's the greatest man alive in the world. And he probably was, you know, because, because he, he genuinely did that. But somebody like George the third, who the idea of giving up power would have been inconceivable to him. Um, nonetheless, he could see the power of doing it. Right. So, um, that's that's something you know. That's sort of Tolkien esque, right? You've got the ring, but are you willing to give it up? And it's hard. It's hard to do. But in order to truly, to, in order, in order really to to go back to Hobbiton, you've got to do it, right? If you want to be in the Shire, you can't have the ring, um, and uh, and you've got to be willing to let it go. And so that's um, you know there are lot lots of overlaps of themes from these different uh, from these different places i think not yeah, it's interesting we're talking about western civilization <laughs> yeah it's all connected and it's interesting that you you bring up tolkien uh i he to me we, we we brought up the word nostalgia a little while earlier and that is to most people a negative word to me it is not a negative word i think it's a very positive word i think it is it's uh i mean you know etymologically it, it's a longing for home right and so when i think of someone like tolkien or Wendell Berry. I mean, so Wendell Berry went home, but also he created home. I mean, he created from his stories like a connection to a place that didn't actually exist, but but we want to imagine, you know, um, but 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 has like a, a texture to it and a reality and these characters and the land and all that sort of thing. And the reason that I love that is that you know, there was a little while ago, there was this song, a big, some big country song. I don't really listen to contemporary country music, but there was this song, Try That in a Small Town. And it was supposed to be like, 
you know, if you, you know, you have certain values or do certain things like, you know, you can't do that in, you know, small town America. And a number of commentators said, and I thought this was apt, they said, well, yeah, the problem with that is go to most small towns in America. They're pretty sad places, actually. Oh, yeah. I absolutely. mean, you know, they're full of now, sadly, like opioid addicts and, you know, poverty and, and, you know, all the things that used to be there aren't there. The farmers that are there just are kind of cogs in this big ag machine. They're not really, they're not really like Wendell Berry, right, on his family farm or whatever. So, but, but to come back to the nostalgia thing, the reason that I like, I like the nostalgic view is to say, um, there, there, there was something, but even if there wasn't, we, we have this sort of innate understanding of this idea of home, of like what our home should be and like what our culture should be. Like in the, again, in the etymological sense, like what our society should be sort of like worshiping and kind of organizing itself around. So, you know, so that's, that's one of the reasons I love Wendell Berry and I love, you know, but for me, myself personally, I, I made my peace with this at some point that, yeah, I'm just, I'm a city guy and there's no point, there would be no point in me trying to like live the Wendell Berry dream, but I hope well, some people I, do. But I mean, know? I think that's realistic though. I mean, I don't live, I don't live on a farm either. I grew up on a farm uh, in Eastern Kentucky, but at the, even at the time, um, everybody in my family were teachers. So my, my father was an elementary school principal. My grandfather taught math and physics at the high school for 40 years, nearly. My mom taught second grade. Uh, everybody, I mean, literally everybody, aunts, uncles, cousins in my family were teachers. That's just sort of the, what the family did. Nonetheless, we lived on a farm, and, uh, but that wasn't the source of our income because my parents taught. And obviously with my dad uh, being a principal, it wasn't being out plowing the field wasn't something he could do with regularity. We had a garden and uh, back then tobacco was, was still a big crop. And um, so you could lease out your farm and people would grow tobacco on it. And so that's usually what happened on our farm. Uh, so other people came in and they would grow tobacco, but it was still active. I mean, agriculture was an active thing when I was growing up and we you know, for at least a period of the time when I was growing up, we had we did have cattle, and um, you know, I looked out my my house window to the backyard, and there were there were cows there. You know, that was just what I saw. That was that was normal. We were very disconnected from that. I was not, you know, it it would be wrong of me to represent myself as a you know sort of uh, hard edged farm boy. I you know I was like, you know, on the academic team, that's what I, in high school, that's what I did, but, you know, but I was around it, and I was involved in it to some degree, I wasn't disconnected from it, maybe I should put it that way, so what we've lost is not just a, a connection with the countryside and food production, you know, people don't know where food really comes from, that's a practical problem, but it's also the case that we don't appreciate what was always understood and just assumed for millennia, which was the value culturally of agriculture and farming. doesn't mean everybody has to be involved in it, but there was a reverence for it, right? Everybody, everybody, um, you know, the, the farmer might be kind of made fun of by the sophisticated and so forth, but there was a nobility kind of in that landed that landed gentry especially, but also the yeoman farmer was something that was very much embraced. 
uh, in the Jeffersonian ideal. And so uh, Barry has written a lot about the connection of agriculture and culture. And in fact, he's some of his essays uh, or uh, books of essays would be subtitled something like essays culture and uh, on culture and agriculture or something like that. He's making an explicit connection there that most people don't see. I mean, it's built into the word, right? Agriculture, but most people don't think about it that way. And, and instead, we sort of excise that and we turn it into agribusiness. But if you try to run a society on business instead of culture, then you get what we've got right now, right? <laughs> that it's, it's not good. Um, but Barry's not coming up with a connection that nobody ever thought of before. He's trying to reintroduce us into a connection that everybody always assumed. You know, again, going back to the, going back to the ancients, uh, you go back to ancient Greeks, uh, you go the Romans, especially revered, uh, revered the the idea of that of that agricultural uh, person, uh, and and that they you know they were pure of heart and pure of motive and yeah I mean we understand that those that there is a certain uh, that there's an idealizing of that sure but that's where that's what myths do but that doesn't mean they're not important and uh, we need we have to we have to keep that connection and that's what the people even we see right now in Germany are fighting for that's what they're even if they don't think of it on quite those terms I mean they're like hey I'm out here making your food and you're trying to put me out of business there are consequences to that uh, there are cultural consequences to, to when a country does that and only a country that is in bad shape tries to do that to their farmers. Mm -hmm. But we've been doing it in, you know, in America for 150 years. Um, we aren't quite to the level of some of the EU countries on doing it. But um, there, it's going to get worse. I mean, we've, we're seeing things like that in Canada, certainly, I think. And, um, so it's worthwhile... I mean, there, it's worthwhile for culture, for, for society at large, to have a reverence for those who produce their food. Mm -hmm. um, and because otherwise we can't live. We don't want, you know, we don't, we don't want to live in the pod. We don't want to eat the bugs, right? <laughs> That's, right. We, want, we, want something, we want something real. Uh, we want a connection to the actual soil. You know, the, even today we've got the, we've, you've, you know the expression "touch grass," right? So people, it, people intuitively know we need a connection to a, a reality. Um, all of us, we're, we're have the good fortune of of talking to one another uh, on these far flung places through a virtual realm. I'm I'm glad that we have that. I mean, none of us would be able to do a podcast without it, right? Uh, or it would be hard, but um, but at the same time, we can't live in this world. We have to live in a real world. And the more and the realer the world, the better it is because it, it forces us to face. It gets us out of the abstract. And that's one of the keys of Barry's writing, as well as Russell Kirk's writing, is both of them have an, a hatred for like this sort of visceral hatred for the abstract versus mm -hmm. the real versus the solid. Anytime we get into the abstract, you're getting into trouble. I mean, Barry has written and I, and he has said to me, 
of course, abstraction is the enemy. I mean, that he puts it in very blunt terms. <laughs> abstraction is the enemy. And and um, Dr. Kirk uh, felt exactly the same way. And, um, and, and that's why he had such a hatred for ideology, because ideology is per se abstract, because mm -hmm. it doesn't deal with reality. It doesn't deal with the reality of human nature and the reality of the fall. So that's, uh, you know, all of the all of these writers pull us into that. And that's why the reverence for the soil is important, because it forces us to look to something real and solid. You can go get a handful of soil yeah. and and you can understand the physical, visceral, physical uh, importance of that. As somebody I follow an awful lot is uh, Matthew B. Crawford. And you said getting in touch with the reality. This book is the world beyond your head. Um, it, it seems, and you just kind of nailed it on the head there. The enemy is abstraction. He just had a new um, post on when you go to, you know, the uh, car mechanic, and now you have somebody who comes, instead of talking to the actual mechanic, you have somebody who, who works at the desk, who comes to you with this chart, who doesn't understand the cars, and you can't talk to the mechanic. It's another level of separation. And uh, it just seems to me, you know, even today, you look at these futuresque kind of um, depictions of what farming will be like with people with their tablets, kind of looking <laughs> at the plant instead of smelling the soil, touching it, looking, you know, um, actually being really, really connected to reality. It just seems that uh, not to be like a Luddite or have, I'm very grateful for the blessings of technology. The minute you say anything negative about it, everybody just freaks out. But it seems right. that like, but what's really happening though, is that is that abstraction from things where you're going to then end up like, not necessarily, but going towards the Wall-E world where we're all right. just surrounded by the screen and we're not connected to reality at all. So that's that's a really good way of putting it. Do you remember a few years ago I mean, it wasn't that long ago um, when uh, I think he was still mayor. Uh, Bloomberg was mayor in, in New York, and he gave some speech uh, where he talked about uh, he was talking about the complexities of something in the modern modern business, modern world. And he said, you know, it's not like farming. I mean, with farming, you could just uh, give you some seeds. You can go put them in the ground and it's going to grow a plant, you know, and he he was just completely dismissive of of any kind of knowledge or skill that would be required to grow plants in order to feed him and that's because somebody as powerful and as wealthy as he is is completely disconnected from the reality of that i mean uh no one who has any knowledge of farming at all this is why it's valuable for people to grow a garden or have a couple of tomato plants, uh, which is something Wendell Berry always recommends. He says, it's always good. Even if you're in the city, grow something, you know, have a, have a, put a tomato plant in a pot because you will be humbled very quickly <laughs> with dealing with, with those things because you think I am, why is this not working? I'm doing everything right. Right. Well, obviously you're not, or it would work, but it's, it teaches us, that we can't always force our will on things. Uh, there are things outside of our control. And 
that it forces us to spend time and effort to learn the particularities of things. And so the particularity of this tomato plant on, on your back deck is different than the particularities of my tomato plant on my back deck or my patio or my backyard. And I have, and a farmer has to figure that out. It forces particularity. In other words, it rejects the abstract. I can't, I can't not be particular about it because I'm trying to grow this tomato plant. I'm not worried about tomato plants in the abstract. How does one grow a tomato plant? I'm trying to grow this one and it's not working. What am I doing wrong? What's, what's the problem here? Is it not in the right place? Is it not, uh, am I watering it too much? Is the soil wrong? All of those things. But to somebody like Bloomberg, and he's just, I'm picking him because he put himself out there on it. There, Most everybody are idiots about this, but not just him. But, uh, you know, it was, it was something just very dismissive about, well, this is something that farmers do. And it, it had this, this notion that farming was easy. It was easily replicated, you know, sort of uh, drone-like people did it. When in fact, the reality is that's the people who often work in office jobs, you know, sort of the office drones, right? Mm -hmm. uh, not, not a farm, not a real farmer, because they're working real land in a real place growing real crops. And so uh, one of the things that farming does uh, in a in a cultural way, uh, is that it it does tie us to particularity, uh, and this has been you know we can flip that and say okay what's one of, what's been one of the big problems of American foreign policy over the past hundred years, it is that we have attempted to force abstraction, uh, usually that we've drawn from our own constitution or our own political history, force abstraction on completely different foreign. Uh, countries that have no tradition matching ours. So you can't just photocopy the U.S. Constitution and hand it to Iraq and say, do this. It doesn't work because it's a completely different particularity than we are. Those are different people. And so that, that's been, you know, a, 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 been the cause of a lot of damage in the world and who knows how many lives lost over the past century because of that kind of abstract thinking that we can just do these things and it will work. And we keep being slapped in the face that it doesn't work. Afghanistan most recently, where you would think we would have been humbled. But one of the things, you know, Americans are very resilient about not being humbled on those things. So um, we, we keep not being, I think. So anyway. Yeah, Alan, the rejection of abstraction or even just contemplating that that issue of abstraction or the abstract versus the real was really mind-blowing for me when I when I first when frankly when I first started reading Kirk and Scruton and people like that. And I have to say that way of thinking led me ultimately is one of the major things that led me to become Catholic actually. Yeah. Because absolutely. Because the whole, the whole, and especially once I, I encountered Ratzinger and and like basic the basically the kind of the you know the much maligned Vatican II theology or whatever, but the you know the idea that the Catholic Church isn't just the biggest and best denomination. The Catholic Church isn't just sort of like doesn't just have this rule book that says, hey, this is this is a pretty good idea and it's old, so we'll just kind of stick with that. No, I mean 
the Catholic Church is proposing itself as the real. You know, it is it is specifically saying we're not, this is not abstract at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just uh, Ratzinger is very good on that. I mean, he's all the time, you know, saying that the the more we face reality, true reality, um, you know, the the closer we're getting to understanding God, um, and you know, that's one of the reasons why um, I don't want to get like and you all probably don't either want to get too far down this rabbit hole, but that's one of the reasons uh, why you you see such a difference in thinking from um, especially sort of um, evangelical Protestantism and and Catholicism is is uh, a lot of the things are so sh a lot of the things of Catholicism, a lot of the the practices, uh, the relics, a lot of these, you know, just real solid actual things i mean i was in bologna and saw the upright seated um uh body of of saint catherine of bologna that's been that's been there for hundreds of years you know there she was in her nun's habit looking back you know <laughs> um those things shock the mind of a lot of moderns also a lot of evangelicals but it it ultimately i think comes down to the embodied versus the disembodied which is another way of saying the real versus the abstract um and a lot of a lot of christian theology uh and sometimes even among some catholics uh trends towards the disembodied and anytime it does problems happen because it's abstraction it's not reality it's not mm -hmm. the physical and so you see a lot of discussion of soul versus uh versus body rather than understanding the the holistic uh, a holistic understanding of the creation of, of body and soul and that was something you know i was raised in and it takes a bit of a mental leap to kind of get there but it's the but it is reality and it's the it is the age-old way of understanding things um and but the further we get away from the the hard and solid and real the you know worse things are going to get whatever whatever it is whatever it is yeah well said anything else bobby for for alan what a what a wonderful conversation yeah no it's it's amazing too how a lot of those not everyone but many of those thinkers who are trying to think through the abstraction to the reality end up oftentimes becoming Catholic. Um, mm -hmm. So it's that kind of that sacramental sense too, uh, that uh, it just, you, you, you want to be close to the Holy, but the Holy as embodied um, mm -hmm. right here in Krakow. I, I, I think I've mentioned this before and I'll, I'll finish with this but in the dominican priory there's a number of um there's a saint uh saint hyacinth is buried there but there's another person who's at, right after he died i forget his name they, he was believed to be a saint and they were telling me that some of the, the dominicans there are telling me that they've discovered that all these people were buried right next to him like all these people in Krakow just wanted to like be as close as possible to his relics. Um, mm -hmm. And it's just, it's just to me um, that that is that sensibility 
Right. Yeah, so. absolutely. Yeah, and, and we often see that sort of thing characterized as superstition, right? Sort of dismissed as superstition. And I'm not saying that superstition doesn't exist or can't exist and that we shouldn't be wary of it. But that may just be people thinking in solid, real terms, right? And I think that that's fundamentally what it is. Uh, and that that kind of thinking is uh, is very much uh, a modern way of thinking, and it's a dangerous way of thinking. And to the degree that we are going to revive, uh, circling back to the beginning, to revive culture, to bring the to recognize the value of this cultural debris of the past in order to revive culture to where that those aren't just past things, but they're real living things that we're making and doing. Um, we have to become more and more comfortable with the real and the visceral. And the more we embrace the hardness and physicality of reality, then the more likely those things are going to happen. And, and we're, we, you know, we're, we're fighting against um, technology to some degree. Like you said, I mean, that's not, we're not saying technology per se is bad, but it presents challenges that we have to be cognizant of. We can't just be dismissive of it or accept it completely on its own terms, just because, you know, I mean, guess um, from, uh, from that, uh, uh, you know, the great uh, philosophical series on Jurassic Park where, right, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, there's a lot of truth to that. And, uh, you know, we're seeing that with AI. I, I, I see all sorts of wonderful uses for AI in uh, computers being able to analyze ancient documents and uh, doing, doing translations of cuneiform tablets and, you know, all sorts of things that, would would require more manpower than we ever could possibly have. At the same time, we see uh, where AI is creating, you know, artistic um, artistic uh, creations where you know culture is not going to be rebuilt on the art of AI. It's going to be built on the art of actual people who are having creative ideas and are skilled at implementing them. Um, and are drawing from the past, but being imaginative, using what Kirk called the moral imagination um, to bring about something good and positive and new. And that's that's what we have to have, and not uh, you know not not be stuck in the past, but not reject the past either, but embrace it and and do great things with it. That's what that's what your the the Renaissance did. That's what the founders did. Um, we've lost touch with that. Don't believe the AI hype, Alan. Those cuneiform trans <laughs> translating bots want to kill you. Don't, 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 don't <laughs> That's believe it. It's entirely possible. I mean, I may be killed by a cuneiform bot at some point. <laughs> well, what, what a tremendous conversation. I, I just recommend everybody, yes, go touch dirt, go feel some tweed on a jacket, go pull a glass... <laughs> Go fill a glass full of something intoxicating and intoxicate it, as Scruton would say. You know, um, go go live in reality. That's that's what we need to do. Yeah, absolutely, one hundred percent. All right. Well, on that note, Alan Cornett, thank you so much for joining us today, thank everybody. You all for please, me. I've enjoyed it. 
Well, we have really enjoyed it, and we definitely want to point our listeners. If, as you said, Alan, we're fellow travelers. We we probably have a lot of audience overlap, but uh, we would love it if anybody who hasn't checked out uh, your cultural debris podcast to to go and do so. And also, hey, maybe maybe take a trip with Alan. That they could be absolutely fun. Should take a trip with us. Yeah. They yeah. All right. To all of our listeners, if you enjoyed this, please do like, share it, subscribe, uh, give us a good review so that we can continue to. Uh, give you the content that you want. As Alan said before, we're not looking to compete with Joe Rogan exactly, but we do think we have something valuable that uh, is a, a niche in the market that we do hope we can kind of push open even a little bit more. So we'd love to continue to make, make these shows. So please do join us next time on the Space Salvi Institute podcast. Until then, live in hope and God bless. <laughs>